Uh, Turn with me to page 775 in your pew Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Um, Page 775, Romans 12. We're going to be reading in there. Just keep that open on your lap as we do that. I should tie my hair back. Greg always tells me my beads bounce against the microphone and come out in the audio. Um, But no pain, no gain, right? That's the old saying that muscleheads use in the gym. I'm sure that Brett used that. And that's a phrase that we know that stresses that growth causes or comes painfully through uh, hard work, through sacrifice, things like that. And that is true for both physical growth and spiritual growth, isn't it? And relearning something that you already knew over again, as Brett Becker had to do, is both physically and mentally arduous, isn't it? I couldn't imagine going through that. Uh, Romans 12, verse, starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Right? Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and uh, uh, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, good, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, favorite passage, one of the, one of the better ones, right? We, we, we know this one well. Um, and right here, Paul admonishes us, right, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, not to conform to this world, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, our thinking. Um, and that sacrificial image that Paul uses there is from the Old Testament practice of having or, or of offering animal sacrifices as worship. So a believer's life we see here is one that is set apart for and is in constant worship of God, which happens by the renewing of our minds. And this is probably one of the more important concepts that we got to wrestle with in the world that we're living in now. But not conforming to the patterns of this world and being transformer, allowing your mind to be transformed is a difficult process. It's not an easy one, right? It takes intentionality. It entails entails, uh, self-denial, not a popular concept, a self-denial of what your brain and your body have learned to desire but aren't actually good for them, right? It means submission to spiritually formative practices in our life allowing the Holy Spirit to apply truth of the truth of God's word to train and to bring you up in righteousness and holiness. And that last song that we just learned is apropos for this sermon. I really liked it. Um, but in the renewal of the mind, right, the body follows suit, right? In, in the renewal of our mind, the body follows along, learning to know and to desire what is good for it and for us. We're being rewired, so to speak, in a sense, uh, to walk well with God, obtaining life and health on the way. We are living sacrifices before the Lord. And Paul explains his own effort in this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize, right? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do things to prepare themselves to win that race, right? They do it to get a crown that will not last, he says, but 
We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Verse 26, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. There is a finish line. There is a goal in front of me, right? I do not fight, fight like a boxer beating the air, you know, just like willy-nilly. There's actually an opponent that I'm, I'm, I'm going at. And he says, verse 27, no, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. And that sounds kind of harsh, uh, but what he's talking about is self-control, right? So that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul is obviously very intentional about his spiritual growth, isn't he? The fall, we realize, had rewired us not to pursue God in a sense. Sin had perverted and twisted our thinking and it has affected our bodily life. The cost of sin's uh, sin has been completely paid for in Christ. We talked about that last week, yet we still struggle against it in this life, suffering the lingering effects as we walk out our faith. We are in a spiritual battle for truth, for our minds, what we do and what we do in our bodies. And the two are inextricably linked, right? We can't separate them. We're not dualistic in our thinking. For us, Everything is spiritual as, as believing Christians, right? Um, from making the bed in the morning to coming to church to my prayer life to going to work, everything is a spiritual activity. Um, everything that we do in the body is a spiritual activity. And so spiritually, we are like Brett Becker, relearning what God originally created us to be So, in a, in a respect, you know. He was, you know, if you... Listen to that story. He was happy. He was healthy. He could walk. He could talk. He could even ski probably better than I could until that stupid accident, right? Just fell and hit his head. And it's as if he died. He was unconscious, unresponsive. But when then he's brought back. He opens his eyes. He's breathing on his own again. He's there but the effects of that fall still linger in his body. He had to work to relearn what he was originally created to be. The old Brett Becker, right? Who could walk and talk and ski and everything. And if we can look back at the created order in early Genesis, we see that we were created to live in peace and harmony with one another and with God in relationships that are marked by fidelity and faithfulness with the Lord and with each other. But the fall had left us spiritually dead, unresponsive. And what we've become and all the vitriol and the violence and the anger and the, and the murder and everything else in the world isn't our original state, is it? It's peace, like Natalie had talked about a few weeks ago. All that other stuff is sin's pollution. In Christ, we were brought back. Now we are relearning what we were created to be. Like Brett, we see improvement even in the smallest of sort of minimal effort in, into our spiritual growth. Christ entered our reality, giving us the power and the desire to return to our, our original state, which is to his glory and to our good, right? And in that order, it's to his glory first, and the benefit is to our good. Effort in spiritual formation isn't to earn favor with God. We know that. We talked about that 
ad nauseum last week. But redemption, you remember, redemption and reconciliation with God was accomplished by Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to earn before the Lord. That's all been done for us. Our goal in the, in the life that we live now is to glorify God by all that we are. Everything we are and say and do and think and, and every activity that we involve ourselves in. Romans 12 continues discussing unity of believers in Christ. It says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. That's good advice, isn't it? In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, for just as each, has one, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it gently, diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now I would put forth that these aren't necessarily easy, easy things, right? In many respects, sin has hardwired us against these things. In our original state, we, we were like mirrors that reflected God's character, right? And, and, but sin shattered that reflection, right? Now, when we look at ourselves, you know, we see the cracks and the shards with some of that original reflection shining through. We were created to be more like a detailed, re realistic portrait of God's reflection before. Now we're more like an abstract Picasso-like representation, right? I, uh, I wish I had grabbed it. I saw on uh, Instagram this week a, a comparison of a, the first portrait that Picasso done, which was very realistic, and the last one he did before he died, which was very abstract. And that was, that's what we're talking about, right? We know, you know, when you look at that, that abstract portrait, we know what it kind of represents, but it's far from a right likeness, isn't it? We were all broken. That's just the truth. And we were all in need of repair, but we still reflect Jesus in certain ways. Even those that are not Christians somehow reflect the Lord in their life in certain ways and, or at certain levels. Sanctification repairs that image. The Christian life being changed to reflect Jesus so he may be glorified in us. But do we like growth and change when it is painful? <laughs> Most of us would say no. One psychologist says it this way. She said, the first way of approaching life is by avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. It's a very simple system. If it feels good, then eat it, take it, or do it. If it feels bad then spit it out, get rid of it, or avoid it. But then she goes on to encourage a different way of thinking and living, one that Wilfred Bayan described as developing mental muscle, right? Sinfulness tends to make us base and animalistic, doesn't it? Selfish, self-centered. 
It's only due to that reflection that is still reminiscent of us in God that humankind hasn't devolved into total destruction of itself. That's, I believe that. And Satan is glorified when we act only on the self and only on pleasure, not allowing our minds to be renewed by God's truth. Christian growth is sanctification. Theologians describe it as a separation to God, an an imputation of Christ as our holiness, purification from moral evil, and confirmation to the image of Christ. It begins when we come to faith in Christ with God setting us apart as his children. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. And then God continues to transform the believer from the inside out to reflect Christ to the world for his purposes, for his glory. It's not just so that I I feel better. It's not just so that I'm blessed. Christ is using me for something in this world. And change doesn't happen instantly. We all know that. Growth takes time. The struggle's valuable, though. There is a struggle in it, and that is valuable. It builds spiritual muscle memory, doesn't it? It's it's sort of like fast food versus a home-cooked meal kind of mentality. Fast food is, you know, quick. It's highly processed. It's unhealthy. Uh, You know, I I think the last time I ate at a McDonald's, I was like, gosh, that was like, ugh. Like, I walked away thinking, I didn't really eat anything. It was like eating air or something like that. It was just gross. But a home-cooked meal, my son disagrees with me. He probably would love McDonald's, but... But a home-cooked meal uh, made in an oven or made in a slow cooker sort of takes time for the food to marinate and to absorb all the flavor and the nutrients. It takes more time and effort, but in the end, it is worth it and it is good for you, right? People want, these days especially, fast food spirituality, fast food Christianity, answers in sound bites, right? To know the why of being called to some sort of obedience in an area of life that that we we don't really understand while not wanting to wait and to submit ourselves in the long process to have answers revealed and baked into us over time. We want our answers before we are going to be obedient. And that's not the way it works. Fast food spirituality sort of keeps us immature and stunts our growth. So we end up saying things like, well, it's too hard, it's too long, it doesn't make any sense to me, it doesn't, you know, it's not logical to me. And then we go about our business and we've not realized that we've just added to our spiritual waistline or to that cancer, we've fed that cancer that is already within us. Obedience in the Christian life is like the radiation that blasts the effects of our cancerous sin out of the body, right? Glorifying Jesus and bringing us further in line with God's original intent for our lives and our purposes in this world. So sanctification is the long, slow growth of of the believer, right? It's the change of the believer with all its complexities, with all its messiness, you know, difficult work relying on trust and community and the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives. The hard work is to sometimes say to the Lord, I choose to believe you. I choose to believe you even when everything within me wants to go this other direction 
or choose this other thing. And that is most easily seen in the, in the young Christian called to celibacy and waiting for a spouse who shares their Christian conviction while friends all around them compromise, doing whatever feels good in the moment, right? Because we have disconnected sex, physical sex, and romance from any spiritual meaning. We're going to talk about that next week, if you remember. We divorce them from shared conviction and morals which glorify Jesus with our life choices. The world's message is that self-denial and suffering are bad. Pursue what feels good, right? But the message of God is that these things are actually beneficial and spiritually meaningful in how they reflect God to the world in us. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in us, renewing and transforming us from the inside out. Romans 8 verse 11. Sanctification is not behavior management, by the way. It's not behavior management. It is transformation at the core. There's a big difference. This is not psychology. This is power talk, right? Sanctification is transformation at the core by God in us, right? Instead of changing behavior, God changes our thoughts, changes our emotions, changing our habits, changing our wants, changing our desires, and all of that in turn filters out into our behavior, how we live our life. By the power of the Spirit, believers put to death sin and unrighteousness in our lives, Romans 8, 12, and 13, right? Feelings and desires aren't the best barometer we find out for what's good for us while God's wisdom and his direction from his, from his word and his leading and his, of his spirit are the best uh, barometer. So we grow in Christ by cultivating spiritual disciplines, right? The spiritual weights with which we train our spiritual muscles in life. And we know those things like prayer and service and study and meditation are a few of those things that we practice as Christians to cultivate spiritual growth. Richard Foster describes the importance of these, these disciplines saying, disciplines don't earn us favor with God or measure our spiritual uh, success. They are exercises which equip us to live fully and freely in the present reality of God. And God works with us, giving us grace as we learn and grow, right? And Paul lists these things in such a way to re reveal to us that growth happens in community and in unity of belief with other Christians, right? So if we have gifts that he talks about that we're not cultivating as individuals, we rob others of the benefit, right? They grow by, exercise, by us exercising our gifts in community and vice versa. We grow from theirs. If I have the gift of prophecy or giving or teaching, but I don't exercise that or I keep it, just keep it all to myself, what, what good does it do you? Growth happens in community. We are to think soberly of ourselves, right? Not becoming prideful. We are to be interdependent in community, working with each other together, knowing that we need each other, reliant on the Spirit of God. 
We have something to give. Each and every one of us has something to give. In the vineyard, we say everybody gets to play, right? We all have something to give. And all of us can be confident in our gifting without being arrogant in our attitudes. There's a big difference. In all of these gifts, as I said, not all come easy to us. They just don't, right? Maybe none do. Maybe you feel like you can't just identify one that you really comes easy for you. But if some even do, our sinful nature seeks to squelch them, and we must make the intentional choice of obedience to act upon them. Years ago, there was one member of 6-8 who uh, had built a business and sold it for quite a bit of money. Uh, a considerable sum of money. And his, his, wife, <laughs> his wife said, you got to give 10% to 6-8. It's your church. You got to do it, right, and as a tithe, which I agree with. And uh, he said to me, he goes, it was one of the hardest things I had to do to write that check. I did not want to write that check. Oh, it was so tough. And just dropping it in the box was so difficult for him. But later on, he said that in doing so, he felt so blessed in the long run Something inexplicable, and I can't explain it, inexplicable happened in his being and in his character as a result of that obedience. Another couple uh, who's no longer here, they've, they've moved away a while ago, they were married later in life. And they shared how they, you know, before they were married, they, how they often wanted strongly to cut corners in that area, to just date outside of Christian circles, to enjoy sex or to marry someone who didn't actually share their Christian conviction. But as painful as it was to wait, they waited, not knowing if God would ever bring someone into their lives that they could spend you know, the rest of this life with. But he did. He did, and their lives were richer as a result. And they can't imagine now life and ministry without that other person. Paul ends with, another, with other important directives here. In verse 9, he says, love must be sincere. And I thought about this, singing that song, do I choose these things, right? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. In other words, choose to be zealous for the Lord, right? But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again, not really easy things sometimes, right? We've, we're not naturally inclined to this kind of a spiritual life with Christ. Uh, these things do take intentional choices quite a bit. Some things come more easy for someone and others don't, right? Sometimes forgiveness is extremely painful. It's a hard thing to forgive somebody something. Somebody said something to me this week that I was like, ooh, that hurt. But I had to forgive them. And that's not easy. It's not easy. Being hospitable for some of you can be a real drudgery, right? One woman I know hates, just absolutely hates to entertain, hates to have people over, but she chooses to do it as a spiritual practice to show care and love for others. And as a result, she would say that she's blessed. One woman shared how she had, uh, 
She had to choose to forgive her husband, you know, confessing that she was using certain arguments to manipulate him to get her way. And so she went to him and she promised she wouldn't do that any longer. And she asked for his forgiveness. And it was a hard thing for her to do, not knowing how he would react. Would it, what would it do, right? And he stood in their kitchen and he walked over to her and he hugged her and he apologized to her. And he thanked her for her honesty and their relationship took a healthy step forward. It's those little moments that make a difference, right? James Emery White shares some insight in all this into an article titled, Why We Cannot Abandon Truth in the Name of Love. Good article, uh, short and good article. And better than I could, he says this. He says, the most basic idea of truth is that which corresponds with reality. So if I say it's raining outside, you can go outside and see if what I said corresponds with what's real, what's really going on, right? It's either raining or it's not. That's the idea of truth. Not what you think is true or what many out there want to be true, but what actually is objectively true, right? Meaning truth is something that stands outside of us. Truth exists. It is. And we know from the scriptures that God is truth. He is the source of all truth. Big concept. And this means that truth is transcendent. Right? That truth doesn't come from us. It's, it's not made up by us. It's not determined by us. But rather it comes to us from the outside. And that's why we speak of the, the Bible as God's revelation to mankind. It's God revealing himself and his truth about himself that could not otherwise be known. Truth isn't something that we create. It is something that we discover, that is revealed to us. It's not what we choose to believe as truth, nor determining a 51% majority as to you know, voting on what is truth, nor what ide- ideologies embrace as truth. Truth is, right? Something either corresponds with reality or it does not, right? Something corresponds with, with the revealed truth of God in this world, or it doesn't. It's not a guessing game, nor some subjective art. This is why people who dismiss dealing with whether something is true say things like this. All that matters is that you're sincere. You hear that a lot, right? All that matters is that you're sincere. Sounds nice, but they miss an important point. You can be sincerely wrong. Hitler was sincerely wrong. Many people in history have been sincerely wrong. Sincerity matters, obviously, but it can't be all that matters, right? Because sincerity alone has nothing to do with reality. This is why when we say things like, well, that's your truth and I have my truth or what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me or there's no such thing as truth, truth is whatever you want it to be, isn't very careful at all in our thinking. They speak as though truth doesn't exist outside of personal opinion, right? 
The idea of truth is the correspondence between our ideas and or perceptions and reality, right? What, what's true is what actually is. If you believe that, 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 uh, that kind of objective truth doesn't really exist, or that, you know, if it does exist, it doesn't really matter, you have very serious challenges to overcome in this world. Extremely big challenges. Even a skeptic uh, like Sigmund Freud had to admit this. He said, if it were really a matter of indifference what we believed, then we might just as well build our bridges of cardboard as of stone or inject a tenth of, gram, a, tenth of a gram of morphia, I guess that's, whatever, what's that stuff, morphine, Morphine, yeah, I guess you wrote it that way then, into a patient instead of a hundredth, or take tear gas as a narcotic instead of ether, right? Truth matters, right? Yet one of the reasons truth is being so, so readily abandoned in our day is because of something else that really matters, and that is love, right? And it seems really strange to us that, you know, but, but because we don't understand the interplay of truth and love, we're abandoning truth in the name of love because of that. And here's the way the dynamics is, is meant to play out. The love that we are meant to express can't be separated from the truth that we are meant to embrace. Say that twice. The love that we were meant to express cannot be separated from the truth that we were meant to embrace. You can't have love without truth, and just like you can't have truth without love. No application of truth or, or of love, if it's actually truly love, can be at the expense of truth. Right? If you love, if you feel like love is calling you or the world is telling you that love calls you to abandon or turn a blind eye to truth, then you are misunderstanding the proper application and demonstration of love, right? Yet that is the plague of our day, isn't it, right? We're sacrificing and compromising truth in the name of love. And the is, this issue was addressed by the Apostle Paul or, or John in his second letter recorded for us in the New Testament. Some people were using the command to love to do away with truth, to do away with any sense of right or wrong, or, or to do away with any sense of doctrine or authority. And in the name of love, they were abandoning all commitments to truth. And so John essentially thundered in reply. He basically said, no, love is based on truth. And when you divorce truth from love, you don't have love any longer. You have lifestyles that descend into immorality and thinking, which degrades into heresy. And this is what people get wrong about the same thing in the concept of grace. To get grace right, it's not just about grace. It's not just about grace. When we think about grace, we think about the words love and forgiveness and acceptance as well we should because that is what grace holds. That's true. But grace isn't just about grace, right? It's part of a package deal, and that package is grace and truth. Grace and truth go together just like love and truth go together. They are inextricably intertwined. They cannot be pulled apart. You take away truth and you don't have grace anymore. 
You have, you, you have some sort of a cheap, sort of sentimental, lifeless, powerless idea which requires you to accept everybody and affirm what everybody does in this world. You will never find that taught in the Bible. Never. Not once. It's not taught there. Much less in the, the teaching and the life of Christ. You will never find that. No one was more loving and grace-giving and accepting than Jesus, but you'll never find Jesus once in, in, in all of his teachings affirming a lifestyle that goes against truth. He doesn't. As John also wrote, Jesus came full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Henry Cloud wrote this. He said, grace is accepting relationship. Truth is what's real. It describes how things really are. Truth without grace is judgment, is just judgment, but grace without truth is just deception. As John Stott once wrote, our love grows soft if it isn't strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. Love without truth lies, truth without love kills. Love without truth lies, Truth without love kills. So the fall was this tragic accident, right? Rewiring us not to pursue God's truth. Sin left us in a spiritual battle for truth, including what we do in our bodies. The two are inextricably linked. So my question for us today is, will we choose to believe God's truth is best for us in our lives, intentionally engaging in spiritual growth this year towards Christ-likeness, learning to walk again and talk again and live again like him in this world, to be renewed in your mind, to live really as a living sacrifice for Jesus. Returning again to what you were originally created to be for the sake of God's glory to the nations. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus called us to that. So it's not that I just grow in Jesus to feel better about myself and oh, you know, like I feel so close to Jesus all the time. That's spiritual navel-gazing. That's a form of self-centeredness. We are called to task. God has called us to the Great Commission. He's called us to be a living sacrifice, to glorify him in every single situation and moment of our lives. That's a very different story. And again, I want to remind you that next week, uh, in solidarity, I am preaching on human sexuality, biblical human sexuality, and I want you to know that so that if your kids are in the room, you'll, you'll know what you're in for. Now, I will say that, and I don't see any little kids in here now, so I can, I see little ones, but they, they, they don't understand. Um, I will you use words like sexuality, sex, orgy, uh, homosexuality, uh, you know, things like that. So I, I'm not going to be too graphic, but I just want you to know that because some people get upset if I don't tell them first. So 
be patient with me as we walk. But it's, it, this is the, the thing that we should be talking about in church. Uh, and part of the problem that we're having so many issues with it is we've never, well, we have talked about it at 6-8, but churches never do talk about it. So we're going to talk about that, and I hope that you are challenged by it and you're encouraged by it and that you will hear the grace and the truth and the love weaved through, through those words next week. But I think it's going to be an important sermon. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you deserve us being a living sacrifice in all all ways. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would would impute this sort of idea to us that that we need to be uh, serious about our spiritual formation, our sanctification in you that we need to be intentional about making those choices to walk with you more deeply and to draw strength from you in a world that may not understand it. And we thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.